Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to your weekly half hour of science with Diffusion. Catching up this week, we'll be going through the weird, the wacky and the wonderful of science as we always do. And later on in the show in particular, we'll be looking at adopting microbes. It's the sound of science. The sound of science. Science. First up today, we'll be looking at Archaeopteryx. And those evolutionary biologists just love it when an intermediate form or missing link between a species and its descendants is found. Now, Lachlan Wachmore's got a doozy, as you'll soon find out. A lot of folks these days believe that birds rose from dinosaurs. And it seems to make sense. Dinosaurs appear to have more in common with modern birds than they do with modern reptiles. If you believe modern interpretations of dinosaur fossils, you'll see similarities between birds and pteropods, or meat-eating dinosaurs, which include Velociraptor and Tyrannosaurus rex. Both have fused clavicles or collarbones, creating a bow-shaped structure called a furcula, more commonly called a wishbone. Birds and pteropods have three toes pointing forwards and one toe pointing backwards. And instead of suspension legs like a modern lizard, dinosaurs had legs that were more or less continuous with the line of their pelvic girdle, so they were faster on their feet and perhaps moved with a bobbing head gait, like a bird. So the evidence for dinosaurs being ancestral to birds is perhaps not conclusive, but certainly compelling. So what did this dino-proto-bird look like, and was there only one of it? If there's one fossil specimen that can lay claim to the title of missing link, it's a bird-like dinosaur, or a dinosaur-looking bird, called Archaeopteryx. Archaeopteryx was first discovered in Germany in 1860. The first specimen was just a single feather. However, it was a single feather found fossilised in a Jurassic limestone in Solenhofen in Bavaria. That means it was around 145 million years old. Six months later, an almost complete skeleton of the animal was found. It was about the size of a crow and had been crushed to a certain extent by the overlying sediment. Subsequent specimens that were found in the same limestone quarry revealed some interesting things. Archaeopteryx has long forelimbs which to all intents and purposes resemble wings. Archaeopteryx also has feathers. Okay, we already knew that, but here's the interesting part. The wing feathers of this critter are asymmetrical, or in other words, the veins of barbules on one flight feather were longer on one side of the feather's stem than on the other. This meant that the feather had evolved for flight and not for insulation. Archaeopteryx is also relatively small, like most flying animals. However, unlike modern birds, Archaeopteryx has a tail. Its vertebral column extends into a long coccyx, almost as long as the preceding head, neck and torso. Also, it has solid bones, unlike modern birds, and most dinosaurian of all, it has teeth. Now, talk to any aeronautical engineer in the world and they will tell you that weight is a very important factor when designing and building aircraft. This makes sense when you consider the proposition that gravity works. Solid bones and heavy teeth are not going to help when you want to fly, so the actual flying ability of Archaeopteryx is a matter of debate. Let's look at that a little closer. 
It's not clear whether Archaeopteryx was capable of powered flapping flight or was just a glider, like a marsupial glider, or somewhere in between, perhaps having a weak flapping ability which assisted gliding and was helpful in jumping from predators, but didn't allow soaring fast flight. Archaeopteryx doesn't have the large breastbone for the attachment of flight muscles that modern birds have, but this could have been done with the wishbone or the sternum. However, the orientation of its shoulder joint with respect to its scapula and humerus suggests that it couldn't raise its wings above its head, unlike modern birds, because it would thus have only been capable of the downstroke in the flapping. It was most likely a powered glider. This has given some fresh impetus when you look at the wings from an aerodynamic perspective. The wings were large in surface area and compared to modern birds short in length with rounded ends. This means several things. Firstly, the wings would have a low stall speed, or in other words, the animal could fly quite slowly and the wings would still generate lift. Secondly, the increased lift comes with a payoff. There's an increase in drag. That's why they put flaps on aircraft. When the flaps come down, the camber of the wing is increased, the lift increases and the drag increases, creating a good configuration for landing because it enables the pilot to put it down nice and easy. So Archaeopteryx would have been able to fly, albeit rather slowly, from standing starts, like jumping out of a tree. Thirdly, the large surface area enabled Archaeopteryx to turn on a dime. It would have had a small turning radius. This allows it to fly through cluttered environments like dense forest. Modern crows and pheasants have similar wing configurations and live in forests themselves. So the evidence for Archaeopteryx being an intermediate form between dinosaurs and birds is compelling. Archaeopteryx isn't the only pteropod believed to be the ancestor of modern birds, but it is certainly the best known. That was Lachlan Watmore and the story of Archaeopteryx. If you'd like to see a picture of one, just type A-R-C-H-A-E-O-P-T-E-R-Y-X into your search engine of choice. I'm sitting And I'm watching you And I'm falling Without a clue now I'm dying, I'm dying in cry for my feelings to keep myself alive. And you said you would be there for me. I'm still trying to care, but nobody seems to be there. Alone, I'm keeping myself, I'm keeping myself tonight. I'm over dying, I'm over trying.
that hot track was Alone by Anexus. If you've ever thought about adoption, bringing a new loved one into the family, what about adopting a microbe? Daz Chandler explores this idea further. Today we're going to take a look at a blog created by a 21-year-old Western Australian girl by the name of Emma Lurie. Since June this year, like loads of men and women, she has decided to keep a blog. Hers is a wee bit different though, so it caught our attention. It's called Adopt a Microbe. And every couple of days she creates an amusing cartoon-like drawing of various microscopic living organisms. She also writes a childlike blurb which allows her microbes to introduce themselves to the viewing public. Here's an example. Hi, you can call me B. Quintana. I'm a gram-negative bacteria. I travel from person to person on body lice. The lice spread around places where there are lots of people close together without proper hygiene. When I get into you, I cause trench fever. There were many lice and me in World War One and World War Two. I cause fever, chills, headache, rash and vertigo, which is dizziness. I also give you a swollen liver plus joint and muscle pain. <laughs> and here's another one. Hi, I'm Staph Epidermidis. I'm a coagulase negative, gram positive coccus. I'm found in normal human skin. When I infect skin, I make it red and oozy. I infect prosthetics, pins, plates, screws and anything in your body that's made of metal. I cause pain and redness and and swelling and, and tissue erosion which loosens the prosthetic. I get into your head through shunts into your brain and give you meningitis. I make a slime layer that's very hard to get off so you have to remove all of the metal. Get the idea? I caught up with the blog creator, Emma Lurie, earlier today. Emma, it's such a cute and quirky idea. What came first, your interest in animation or microbes? Um, I guess interest in animation in terms of that I've liked sort of uh, graphic novels and comics and whatnot before I really started getting into microbes and, and bacteria. But um, I think, they I don't know, I just thought they really went well together. How does one get into microbes and bacteria? Have you, have you been studying microbiology? I can see on your blog that you're a student. Um, yeah, I study, I'm in third year medicine at uh, University of Western Australia. And I um, always just thought that infectious diseases, which is like uh, bacteria, viruses, are some of the most difficult things to memorise in the course because there's just so many of them and they all have really complicated names. And that just it makes it so much easier if you have something to connect it with. <laughs> I found it really interesting reading the comments posted by those who visited your blog. Many of them seem to be microbiologists. Yeah, I found that as well, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, microbiologists and uh, lab technicians, high school science uh, teachers and all sorts of people who have some sort of interest in microbes themselves tend to really be into it. Did you set out with a specific audience in mind or was it purely a study tool for you? Um, no, at first it was just a study tool or maybe a way of procrastinating and, and <laughs> pretending I'm studying when I was actually just drawing. But then I decided that other people could, especially, you know, at first my classmates could benefit from seeing them as well and then they liked them so much I decided that maybe people who weren't just my classmates would also, classmates would also enjoy reading them.
I also love the fact that the drawings and the descriptions are similar to what you might find in children's bedtime stories in terms of style, but of course you're talking about real-life germs and evil bacteria, so it's essentially extremely dark viewing or reading for kids. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're quite, not quite, they don't quite fit together, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but do you plan to take this idea any further than the blog? Are there any interested publishers out there? Um, I would love to get it published, but I haven't. I don't. I haven't approached anyone yet, and no one's approached me yet. So I guess I'll. I should work on that. I was just sort of waiting mostly till after the exam, <laughs> exam study for the microbes that I had to learn was over, and then. Once I was being examined on them, I could try to get them published. So, yeah, I'd love to go somewhere further with that. Or, I don't know, flashcards, posters. <laughs> People have given me all sorts of ideas, but I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do with it yet. Are you trying to promote the Adopt-A-Microbe blog? I'm trying. Um, I think one of the main, one of the great things that promoted it was um, getting it on another blog, by the name of Boing Boing, which mm. is a very widely read um, uh, curiosities of the internet type blog. That's where I found you. Mm, yeah, and and then I looked the next day and there were thousands of people who had come to my website and that just blew me away because I had no idea and hopefully some of them will come back. Well, congratulations. Like I said, I, I'm a big fan. I think it's a really, really cute blog. And I, I think that that mix of um, the childlike type drawings with the really dark and sort of science-based, almost sinister definitions of the microbes is, is really, really quite interesting and addictive. So um, I hope it becomes even more popular than it is now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emma. Emma Lurie speaking about her blog called Adopt a Microbe, which you can visit for yourself at adoptamicrobe.blogspot.com. And thank you, Daz, for that feature on Adopting a Microbe. And yes, as you've cleverly guessed, we have been swapping things around tonight, but now we're getting to the news with Mark West. Thanks, Jackie. Some of our listeners may have read the Roald Dahl book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and its sequel, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. Of course, the idea of an elevator that takes you up to the planets and stars and into the heavens is fanciful. Or is it? An upstart company of enterprising engineers and investment strategists want to tackle the ultimate high-rise project for the 21st century the Space Elevator. There was even a conference devoted to it, the first international Space Elevator Conference. World-class specialists in diverse fields, from materials science, bridge building and aerospace technology, to law, business and financing, all think that the Space Elevator might actually work. This is a vertical railroad, said Brad Edwards, co-founder of Seattle-based Highlift Systems. The space elevator has long been the stuff of science fiction. We're turning the concept into a reality. Edwards is a driving force behind the space elevator project. The work has been spurred into being by funding through the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts program. 
At the heart of the space elevator is a ribbon that stretches some 100,000 kilometres from Earth to space. This ribbon would be anchored to an offshore sea platform floating near the equatorial line in the Pacific Ocean. At the other end, high above the Earth, the elevator is tipped by a counterweight. Making the difference in designing a true space elevator is finding a critical building material for the ultra-lengthy tether, cable or ribbon. And the answer may be nanotubes. Carbon nanotubes possess incredible properties. One of those attributes is having a tensile strength 100 times stronger than steel at one-fifth the weight. Margaret Rowlands, a materials engineer for Foster Miller Inc., said the jury is still out on how to best fashion carbon nanotubes for use in a space elevator. The technology to achieve the target strength on a larger scale is still not with us, she noted. We're getting our team together. We believe we can have a viable, usable system in the reasonable future, Edwards concluded. But somehow the manufacturers must make money out of all of this, and as it will cost an absolute fortune to build, I can't see any of this happening anytime soon. Well, imagine it's going to mean space travel or just getting cargo and satellites up into space would just be so much cheaper when you haven't got rocket fuel and all that kind of and safety issues. It would be pretty to cool about, to be able to train to, astronauts. Well, to fling things out into space would be pretty cool and save a lot of energy, I imagine, as mm. well. And, but I imagine that they'd have to do the actual lifting, I imagine, with some sort of like a, a magnetic railway, you know, like how the, like the rider Dreamworld currently with a... <laughs> or some like those Japanese railway. Yeah, like right, the magnets like and that kind of stuff. Things. Yeah. Well, I think that's the amazing thing. The, these materials might be a long way away just to build the thing, but the energy and the types of concepts to be able to throw things 100,000 kilometers into the air to make something that long is a long way away i would have thought i don't know we know how to do it yet possibly but they're going to be doing it so that they start in space is that right yeah the idea is that they send up a uh, a satellite a geosynchronous satellite so it goes around the earth at the same speed as the otherwise earth. it would have to be a very very long cable otherwise it would it have can, to be, yeah. yes and we get all tangled and mm. the earth would trip over yes and then you build it down from there and then you build it down thinly and then sort of build it back up. Because you wouldn't be able to start it from the ground because it wouldn't be able to support its own weight. There's no, we don't have the materials and the engineering skills to be able to no, that's build right. something that high that, that can support its own weight. Yeah, you need it to come down and then have the, you know, the gravity helping you. Yeah, which is like the, that's why the skyscrapers, it's such a big thing when we get the, the, the largest skyscraper. It's not just the money to put it together, but it's the actual engineering feat of having a building like that support its own weight. So this will put um, well. This will put Centerpoint to shame, won't it? Sure, it sure will. <laughs> so what else is happening in science news, Mark? Well, here's a good story for young men out there looking for a sugar mummy. <laughs> and <laughs> and didn't we all? Well, <laughs> you're married, aren't you, Matt? It's <laughs> 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 just shout out to Matt's wife. Uh, chimpanzee males prefer to have sex with older females so much so that male chimps will chase down and fight over the oldest females. Meanwhile, says anthropologist assistant Professor Martin Muller and his colleagues at Boston University, the youngest female chimps are forced to beg for attention from the males. I wonder if that's because they're, they're proven mothers. Like, they haven't died in childbirth, and so they're probably less likely to. It's just an evolutionary... Well, evolutionarily, thing. they've outwit, our last outplayed everybody, mm. so... But that's the exact opposite to what happens in humans. Yes, it is. That's Which right. Which is crazy because genetically we're so closely related to chimpanzees and the monkey family and you'd just think that it would be kind of similar, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, this is the really interesting part of the story, actually. I mean, I wish there were lots of young females begging me for sex. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty happy that there's not lots of young female chimps begging me for sex. Well, you're just going to the wrong clubs. <laughs> 
Do I dare ask which are the right gloves? And the thing is, too, the young female chimpanzees, they're, they're displaying themselves. They've got their own processes. Like when they're fertile, their genitals become very red and swollen. Mm-hmm. And so they're running around advertising, going, I am fertile. But male chimpanzees are still chasing after the older generation. Maybe they choose the older women not so much because of fertility then because it's the young females who are advertising themselves. Maybe they just don't like a girl that's really out there and forward. Maybe. But too, I mean, the, the, the older chimpanzees, socially, they're more accepted. I think in some ways they might even be looked after better. They've got might more be a act- status symbol. Yeah. Well, this is much more of a social thing than, than a yes, genetic right. thing, yes. isn't it? This, mm. is, this is quite interesting. Because chimps do have a very hierarchical structure in, in their societies. You certainly have your place if you are a chimpanzee or a gorilla. A lot of, most of the primates, they certainly... Whilst they're very family orientated, the hierarchy is still set in there. That's right, and yeah. you know where you are, and you don't get any other place unless someone dies or unless you knock him off. Like even if it's your brother or something. Like becoming a member of the SCG. Yes, that's right. You have to wait. The other thing is, too, the female chimpanzees are fertile for a lot longer, um, whether that's because their lifespan doesn't see them through to a phase like menopause, but they are fertile, or most breeds are fertile for most of their lives. Well, that's right. They're fertile up till. Well, so, the life expectancy is about 40. And they're fertile years, the whole time. Yeah. So choosing a, a younger female isn't necessarily better for fertility. So is that the human equivalent of 20-year-old men looking for 80-year-old women? Ooh, a bit Anna Nicole Smith there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the opposite way around, but yes. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I mean, maybe it's not about looking for good mothers because if you're looking for an older chimp and they're, they're going to die a few years later, maybe they're not but looking they, for mothers. But they wouldn't care if the mother sticks around or not. They just care that their line carries on. Mm. Well, that's true. As long as they live long enough for the... For their seed to be for, passed on. And for that yep. to, to be looked after and to be nursed. And they get some older woman loving, mm. which is what they're looking for. And this is the opposite to what we're seeing in humans. And there's a thing here about speed dating. And we found out that if you're a tall man and you go speed dating, you're much more likely to have success than if you're a shorter man. The University of Essex has calculated that for every 2.5 centimetres taller a man is than his speed dating rivals the number of women who want to meet him goes up by about 5%. So don't go speed dating when there's the basketball players are... Yeah, no, don't go when the basketball players are... also in there. Which is very opposite to chimps because this speed dating study also found that while uh, women prefer men who are young and tall, while men are more attracted to women who are young and thin. So this is the exact opposite to the chimp, which is uh, interesting. Each extra year, in comparison with others in the speed dating group, reduces a man's chance of finding a partner by 4%, and for women it's 5%. Right, so if I went speed dating, I'm six foot two, but I'm also 31, so it sort of balances out. But you're a very attractive man, Oh, right? well, there is you that. Know, there are some <laughs> factors that just Once can't again, be... hello to Mrs. Clark. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a very tall woman, but, I mean, most people, they sort of sit there and go, oh, what's your idea of the ideal man? He's taller, you know, not too much older than yourself. Interestingly enough, this report didn't go into financial status. But, well, it probably um, doesn't come into it in speed dating. You, probably, you, don't have an, you wouldn't have enough time, would you? How I'm tall are you? Very tall. Check. Brown hair. Check. Earning. Check. Well, how much is enough, Jackie? How much do you need somebody Ooh. to earn? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, I earn peanuts, so I don't think I could really expect too much. <laughs> And thank you for joining us for another week on Diffusion. Contributing this week was Lachlan Watmore, Daz Chandler, Mark West and Matthew Clark, who is also our producer today and Lord of the Panel Board. We're produced here in the studios of 2SER Sydney and sent around across the nation by the Community Radio Network. If you want to catch our podcast, just head over to www2 
diffusionradio.com. I'm Jackie Pepper and we'll see you again soon for another great week on Diffusion. So easy, it can be so easy to pick up the